and really appreciate it. And it gives us a picture. The book of Philippians, I, I think one of the reasons it's popular is because one of its main themes is the theme of joy. And also because it's not a book that so much goes into deep explanations. It's not a book that gives us, gives us rules to follow so much as it's mainly a book that gives us a picture of what the Christian life ought to look like. And a picture, sometimes pictures are uh, the best tools to teach us and examples are the best tools to teach us what we ought to be and what we ought to aspire to. And uh, we're continuing, we're in, in chapter 1, the very end of chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, and to you that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word for God's children this morning. So, for Christian believers, if you're familiar with the Christian faith, one of the things you might have heard before is at the heart of our faith is what we call the gospel. And the gospel message is simply this. In a nutshell, it's that our standing, our status before God, our relationship with God in this life and for all eternity is not based on any sacrifices we make to God, not based on any good deeds we might do for God, not based on our righteousness or our personal holiness, but it's based wholly and completely in the sacrifice God made for us when he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. It's based wholly and completely on the righteousness of Christ. It's based wholly and completely on the success of Christ and his resurrection and triumph over death for us. And it's 100% free. It's simply a gift that we need to accept. As someone has said, the biggest barrier to accepting the gospel is all you need is need. All you need is nothing. And we can't bring ourselves to accept that because we bring all of our baggage. But if we can come to the place where we recognize we have nothing, and as the song says, we bring nothing in our hands and simply cling to the cross of Christ, then we can stand before God. Then we're invited into his presence. So that's, that's the heart of the gospel message. Uh, at the heart of what our, our, the, the Bible teaches. But there's another side to that. And what the Bible makes clear is that if we actually get that, if we actually believe that, it changes everything. In fact, understanding the gospel, understanding that Jesus died for us, and understanding that Jesus gave his life to redeem us, actually is, provides one of the most profound basis for a total life transformation if we allow it to. Because the paradox is that what, what, what history has shown, what life has shown, is that free grace is actually a much more powerful force for life transformation than just giving someone a set of rules or trying to give, make someone afraid or just, just trying to give somebody a carrot that they're trying to earn. Because gratitude can be a more powerful motive than 
mere obligation. And hope can, is a higher motive than fear, and love results in greater devotion than mere duty. And the Christian life is lived in gratitude, it's lived in hope, it's lived by love, and those forces change us from the outside in. They don't just force external compliance on us. And so Paul talks a lot about the gospel and how the gospel is absolutely by grace alone, through faith alone, but then he talks almost as much about how the gospel changes us, how the gospel always transforms us. He calls that, in this passage, he calls it living a life worthy of the gospel. What does it mean when your life is a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so that's what I want to talk about today is, is how the gospel will change us if we get it, if we do believe it. The Bible says the gospel is like a seed, and when it takes root, it bears fruit in our life. And here we're going to talk about some aspects of this at the heart of the gospel. And I think there's, there's three factors that Paul brings up here. There's, there's others that come up in other places, but three I want to camp on today. One is the gospel moves us to live in unity with others, to get along with others. Paul says, I want to know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one person for the faith of the gospel. And scholars say that, that probably one of the concerns Paul had about his favorite church there in Philippi was rumors of dissent, rumors of disagreement, people not getting along well. And so he's, he, he's reminding them that part of living a life worthy of the gospel is that you work hard to get along with other people who believe the gospel, other people who embrace the gospel. In fact, your common commitment to Christ is the ultimate basis for unity with fellow followers of Jesus. And now, there's a problem with this, an obvious problem, and, and it, you know, it, it strikes me as a pastor. I, I meet people and you know, introduce myself, tell them I'm a pastor, especially in, since I've been in Jersey City. And it seems like I meet so many people who grew up in the church and have since walked away from the church because in the course of their growing up years, they, they experienced these horrific, devastating church splits that just decimated these congregations that they were a part of. And, and it was so disillusioning to many people that they walked away from, from the church as a result. And actually, they've got a point at one level because if the gospel is so important, if grace is so amazing, it should enable us to overcome all of the petty things. If we elevate Jesus, then all of the secondary things should stay secondary and we should be able to get along. That's what Paul means by living a life worthy of the gospel. And, you know, one of the worst things, it's one of the worst uh, results of church splits not only the way it devastates the people in the church, particularly the little ones who are growing up in the church who are watching this, and all of a sudden they find out they can't go to church with their friends anymore because their parents aren't getting along or, what, or whatever, but when these things become public or you're just uh, explaining to your neighbors or sometimes when they're big churches and, and these splits make the news and they're trying to explain this to people who are on the outside looking in, they're like, what? Is it, I thought you guys were all Christians. What is it you're disagreeing about now? Because, because the actual substance of the disagreement is so, is, seems so esoteric to any normal person. And uh, so, but the gospel, Paul says, and Paul reiterates over and over again, should be the basis for unity, a basis for connection. And a life worthy of the gospel is going to seek real unity and real connection with other people 
who share that commitment. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul puts it this way, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that is the ultimate basis of our unity. When we elevate the gospel and our connection to God, then we relegate all the secondary things to a second place and we can get along in spite of disagreements. And it's something that actual believers expect of other people. You know the story maybe in 1962, Martin Luther King went to Birmingham and he was president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And he was leading a group of Christians to Birmingham, which was a place where segregation was still being practice where the segregation where the anti-segregation laws had not been implemented against illegally not implemented and uh, he, he started running these uh, these protests and pointing this out trying to bring the attention of the world on Birmingham and uh, he was thrown in jail and when he was in jail he was flabbergasted that the fellow Christians in Birmingham didn't come to his aid because he, he was a Christian leader. He was leading a large Christian organization and he was expecting that the Christians in Birmingham, of whom it was almost everyone, that they were going to, were, were going to support him, that they were going to stand with him. And they didn't. In fact, he was thrown in jail and he was left there for, for quite a long period of time, not bailed out, not released or anything. And so he wrote a long letter which you might have heard of. It's called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. And in it, here's what he says. He says, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our grievances could reach the power structure. I hope that each of you would understand, but I have been disappointed. I've heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with desegregation because it is the law, but I've longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the black man is your brother. See the logic he was appealing to? He's like, I thought we all believed this. I thought we believed that all followers of Christ were part of the same family. I thought we believed we were all brothers and sisters in Christ and you were going to stand with me when I came to your town. But you just left me in jail here for weeks and weeks and weeks. See, this is why the church loses so much credibility in the world. We pretend we're following Christ, but we're actually using Christ to, fo to follow whatever agenda we might have. And real believers... When, when you meet real believers at work, in your neighborhood, in the public square, one of the things that, that happens sometimes, you meet fellow Christians, you, you realize we really do have something in common. And maybe we're from completely different backgrounds. Maybe we were born in different countries. Maybe our first languages are different languages. But because we're fellow believers, because we're fellow followers of Christ, the most important thing is something we have in common. And that's one of the great opportunities of those types of friendships because they give us an opportunity to affirm that yes we really do believe the gospel yes this really is important so a gospel worthy life is a life of unity with fellow believers and secondly he says it's a life of 
courage. Paul goes on to say, don't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and to you that you will be saved and that by God. The Bible says in many places that one of the marks of true believers is going to be courage. That's why the, the book of Acts is so inspiring to read. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, it's the, it's the story of the first generation of the church. And one of the things that's striking is how absolutely courageous the first Christians were and how absolutely courageous the disciples became after Jesus left them and they went about the mission of starting the very first church. And one of the great stories is it's just, just weeks after Jesus, after the resurrection, Peter and John are preaching away. They're drawing a crowd and they get arrested and they're brought before the court and it says, they, they brought them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John said, what's right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And, you know, there, this, this, this inspiring example, remember, Peter was the same guy who, who denied that he knew Jesus just a few weeks pre previous, and now he's brought up before the court. They tell him to stop preaching, and, and they just say, no, we can't. We've got to obey God rather than men. And so courage was one of the key ingredients, the key virtues that got the, the early church started back in the day. The reason the early church could get going was because those first Christians were so courageous. And if you look around the world today, in so many of the countries of the world, unless you're a courageous individual, you can't be a Christian. Because in Egypt and in Sri Lanka, for example, it's an act of courage just to show up at church because churches are habitually bombed by terrorists. And, and, and that's true in many places in the Middle East, just to identify as a Christian is a courageous and dangerous thing. And in other places, in China and in uh, North, North Korea and, and, and uh, other places, Christians are victims of state-sponsored oppression. And so, so we think about in the world today, there's a lot of people who are risking their lives or even giving their lives courageously because of their faith. And, uh, you know, we're here in America, and it's not quite that way, but I think for a lot of us in in our, among our friends, among our co-workers, among our family members, we get challenged and, and we got, a, got an opportunity to exercise courage if we're called to. Because life is scary and following Christ, regardless of the, the, the response you get from those around you can be scary. It requires courage. In fact, it's so essential that it's, it's interesting. In the book of Revelation, there's a scary passage where there's, a, there's the final condemnation of, of the apostates, and it says, Revelation 21, verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake. And I read this, I'm like, you know, I can understand the vile and uh, the murderers and the liars, but why does he have to include the cowards in this list? I mean, what about me? <laughs> uh, but what the Bible is saying here and what the New Testament says over and over again is that courage is 
one of the essential fruits of the gospel in our life. Courage is one of the marks of a life-transforming encounter with Jesus. Do you really believe? Do you really have faith? Well, you know when you find out is when you're called on to act with courage and you see what's there. See, scary things are actually an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for us to really reaffirm our faith, or really test our faith, to really dig down and say, do we really have faith? Just like, just like temptations to, uh, to, be, uh, to, to not get along with other Christians are opportunities to remind ourselves of what really matters. So the question for all of us is, where is God calling you to act with courage? It's a challenge for all of us. So, so a life worthy of the gospel, it's a life of unity, it's a life of courage. And thirdly, and perhaps least inspiring, it can be a life of suffering. Paul goes on to say, It's been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul, one of the things Paul says about the gospel life is it's not necessarily a life where we go from victory to victory and from glory to glory. Sometimes following Christ will be following Christ into suffering and following Christ into real hardship if we're committed to him. And, you know, broadly speaking, I, th I think there's two kinds of sufferings that we experience in life. One is we suffer because this world is a broken place. And, you know, there's a sense in which all spirituality is a, is a response to the reality of suffering in this world. Buddha said life is suffering. It's a, one of the basic propositions of, of Buddhism. And all of Buddhism is about dealing with the inevitable suffering of life. You know, we live in a broken world, and so sometimes our plans break, sometimes our hopes our hopes are broken, sometimes our dreams are broken, sometimes our bodies break, sometimes our families break, and our relationships break, and all of these things cause great suffering in our lives, great dis disorientation and great agony in our lives. But there's another kind of suffering, another aspect of suffering that's unique for followers of Christ. Sometimes following Christ leads us into hard times. And sometimes a life worthy of the gospel <coughs> involves a life that is open to or results in enduring suffering. I wish it wasn't so, but it is. Because sometimes when we're seeking to follow Christ, when sometimes when we're seeking to be faithful, sometimes when we're seeking to honor God, God calls us to do things that are difficult, that are painful, and that are going to result in discomfort. And sometimes it's just a call to give generously, and it means you're going to sacrifice something you really wanted to get for yourself. Sometimes it's, it's a call to serve generously, and it means your life is going to be inconvenienced. You're not going to be able to get to some things you wanted to do. Sometimes it's a moral call. You're in, in your professional environment. You realize your company or your boss is asking you to do unethical things, and you've got to walk away from that opportunity or walk away from that place because it's not, it's not consistent with, with the morals or the values and the integrity that you feel God is calling you to, to, to uh, live in. Sometimes it's in a relationship. You're, you desperately want to be in a relationship, but the person you're in a relationship with 
doesn't doesn't share your same faith, doesn't share your same hope, and so, so so you 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 face this uh, this temptation or or this difficulty about about uh, am I going to be true to the gospel and to the love of Christ, or am I going to pursue this relationship? There's all kinds of ways that that as you follow Christ and you seek to live a life worthy of the gospel, you'll find that there's going to be a cost involved. He's going to call us into some sort of suffering. Now, there's sort of uh, uh, an American thing that we believe that all of, all of the hard choices we make will always have a happy ending. You know, I'm going to quit this job because my boss is asking me to do something unethical, but then I'm going to, give a te- I'm going to be able to give a testimony in church in a couple months because I found an even better job. Or I walked away from this relationship because I realized it wasn't pleasing to God, but then I walked into one church one day and there she was and, and everything worked out. And, and oftentimes we, we have this expectation and, and it's, 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 I, all I can say is I think it's a very American expectation that every time we do the right thing, we're going to be blessed as a result and things will get better. But sometimes we do the right thing, and I just want to be, be real with you guys, sometimes we do the right thing and it means that you're going to suffer a career setback that you'll never really recover from, or you're going to not have a relationship for a while because of these decisions, or you're going to have a financial setback that that's really going to be difficult for you to work through, or you're going to serve in a way that, that really costs you a lot and nobody's really going to appreciate it. Uh, and the reality is sometimes doing the right thing Sometimes living a life worthy of the gospel is going to cost you in the here and now. Jesus says, it's been granted you, Paul says here, it's been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And this is something that Paul the Apostle was dealing with personally, because, you know, Paul was getting beat up everywhere he goes, and now as he writes the book of Philippians, he's He's in prison, he's on trial, and, and it seems like life isn't really working out too well for Paul. And so these other guys came along calling themselves apostles, and they said, don't listen to Paul. Look, his life's a mess. Look, he's a train wreck. Why would you, why would you take advice from a guy who's in prison? And, uh, and, and you know, follow us, because we'll show you the path to wealth and health and happiness and all these kinds of things. And Paul turns that around and says, it's been granted us on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You know, to follow Christ sometimes means that we're going to be taking sacrifices. Sometimes it means we're going to give things up that we're not going to be able to get back. And, but if we're living by faith, we'll be able to do that. A little later in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul puts, puts it this way. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, the most to be pitied. And so what Paul is saying there is, is another way of, of, of rephrasing this, is what is there about the way you're living right here and right now that makes no sense to people who don't understand the hope you have for all eternity, the hope you have because you believe in heaven, the hope you have because Jesus rose from the dead, and one day you too will have a new life. What are the things in your life that people who don't grasp that look at you and say, 
why are they even doing this thing? Why are they making those sacrifices? Why are they holding on to those commitments? Why are they letting those things go? Because that's the mark of the gospel-worthy life. You have things in your life that make no sense apart from this hope. And when you see it that way, then you realize the struggle is worth it. Because we all understand that, well, if, if I want to get in shape, it's going to be might be painful for a while for me to reach my fitness goal or you know I'm gonna to have to give up some eating some things that I really enjoy or if I have an educational goal and I want to go back to school to get another degree it's really gonna cost me a lot in the short term it's gonna take a lot of time it's gonna take a lot of money it's gonna take me take me out of some things I'd like to do but I have this educational goal that I'm going to pursue or or sometimes you have a professional goal that's going to be really hard to attain but you really dedicate yourself to it you make the sacrifices because of the goal and in the same way Bible says that if our goal is to follow Christ if our goal is to enjoy the blessings of the gospel if our goal is not just this life but all of eternity then from time to time we're going to make suffer we're going to make sacrifices and we're going to suffer in ways that make no sense to people who don't understand that goal because remember the heart of the gospel the essence of the gospel is the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus is a story of God coming and suffering for us of God becoming one of us and then when he became one of us he became a servant and then he became a servant but then he was a servant who was condemned and nailed to a cross and then he was he was who was a servant who died in our place and the suffering of Christ is the heart of Christian hope because ultimately it's not my suffering that's going to redeem me it's the it's the suffering of Christ on my behalf that is the heart of my redemption and just as for Jesus to come and to redeem humanity that was costly and painful it should inspire us because it's also a picture of his love and his devotion to us so when we follow him we're called to choose a path of suffering we're called to sacrifice things we really really want because we love him more that's proof that we found our hope in him. The suffering of Christ was necessary for him because it was through his, his suffering, through his death, through, that he was set up for his resurrection and the ultimate renewal of all things. And in the same way, the suffering that we endure is necessary for us in some way because it's the path that God is going to use in our life to make us someone who is just like Christ. It's not the goal, but it's the path to the ultimate goal, to experiencing the hope that he's called us to. So what does a life worthy of the gospel look like? It looks like a life of unity where we elevate Jesus in our relationships and we make other things secondary. It's a life of courage where we don't back down from our, our biggest responsibilities. And it's a life of suffering at times, suffering and sacrifice that's freely chosen, not that's imposed on us, but that we choose because of our commitments. Is that your life? You know, I was thinking about this this week and I was like, is this my life? I'm like, well, if I'm honest, probably not most of the time. 
in my own life, I'm basically mostly seeking ease and driven by fear and anxiety and, and, uh, and, and, and keeping away from people who I don't get along with. And I'm not really worthy of the gospel. But then I remember what is the gospel? What is the basis upon which I stand before God? It's not just, not, my, not at all my worthy life, but it's the worthiness of Christ who came and lived a courageous, sacrificial, gracious life and gave himself for me. That's my only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the courage of Christ. I thank you for Jesus' willingness to suffer for us. I thank you for his desire to be united with us. I pray that that would become profound and real to us in life-changing ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.